All right, so let's talk a little bit about the markets here. Welcome to Bull Bear Radio. Market pricing is nuts. Each week, we catch up with WBI's experts, Matt and Don Schreiber. Down 77%. You know what you need to recover from that? A miracle. WBI brings you wealth building market insights. Hi, and welcome to Bull Bear Radio. I'm your host, Matt Schreiber. I'm here with Don Schreiber. Morning. Good morning. We're, we're real excited today. We have a very, very, very special guest for you later today. I'm not even going to reveal our special guest yet because I just want you guys. It's Batman. I'm like Robin. I like Robin and, you know, so we could, Spider-Man. Maybe it's Spider-Man. <laughs> I don't know. You know, it could be a whole like Marvel Comics thing. I don't know. Anyway, uh, Don, great win this past weekend for the Gamecocks. I just South have to, Carolina. I, I have to start out Cocky's there. Getting cocky. Yeah, yeah. We beat Arkansas forty-eight to twenty-two. I gotta say, three defensive scores. The, the defense showed up. It was a manly effort. Monstrous. So if you didn't know, Bama won again this weekend. Who? The, the Nick Saban guys. Oh my goodness. You know, you know those those guys rolled again. Roll Tide. Georgia won again. Georgia? Yeah. I, 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 Bulldogs. Oh, Oklahoma lost. That was the big upset of the weekend. They lost to Iowa State, if you can believe that. Michigan, also a loser against Michigan State. Hey, how about LSU kick in Florida's butt? Wow. That that was a, a big loss for you know the Gators. And a, a really big win for LSU. So anyway, let's let's get into this, Don. Here, I want to talk. Uh, recently, uh, our our friend, uh, well, not really our friend. I I don't know him, but you know everybody knows of him. Uh, Schiller put out a piece. You know, the coming of the bear market cape ratio, which is for you, those of you guys who don't know, it's the cyclically adjusted PE. It's above 30, and it's only been there two times, 1929 and 1997 to 2002. So, and right now, it is above 30. That's, that's right, which, which is, you know, the is third that, time is in history. Is that a bad sign or a good sign? Uh, he's saying that, you know, it's, that uh, growth is decent, but volatility is really low, and he doesn't like where the cape is at. What's your take on this, uh, Don? You know, we haven't had the 20% bear market correction in a long time. Is it looming, or is, is the bear going to hibernate for a while? Well, listen, you know, the, this, when, when the uh, cosmic tumblers start to click together, I'm always paying attention. And when we get the cape ratio. The cosmic tumblers? Cosmic tumblers, you can wow. hear them clicking together. And <clears throat> when that happens, you know, the last two times that we had the cape ratio ab- at 29 or above 1929, that was a doozy of a bear market. That was. That was, that was bad. In 1999, when it was very frothy, lots of bubbles, 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 bubbles. Oh, stop with the bubbles already. Come on. Listen, that's, Don, that's where the we're bubbles. at. The bubbles. Come on, man. Yes. We, so we got bubbles and we've got. So you're, you're thinking the Cape being at 30 stuff. here and PEs, you know, on a trailing 12 month basis around 25. It's a bubble. I think we're in a pricing bubble for sure. Based on the economic growth, which is still slow. 
We've got some uh, wind at our back, potentially over the next year or so, with the hurricane rebuilding efforts uh, in the south part of the United States. And uh, so that should help ease that a little bit. You know, this market, investors have been conditioned that the Fed has the backstop. They haven't noticed that the Fed is doing quantitative tightening, which means that they just knocked the backstop over. Wow, that, you know, so let's let's talk for a second. Let's switch gears here. Well, it's kind of the same gear, but we're going to switch gears. Maybe the cosmic tumblers are clicking. I don't know. Let's talk Reaganomics for a second. So, you know, it's also known as trickle-down economics, and at the core were huge tax cuts. So what was the thought process behind, you know, Reaganomics at the time, and is there any, you know, is it similar to what the administration's talking about now? Absolutely. You know, uh, the Trump tax policy has been patterned after Reaganomics, and we know that Reaganomics gave us the uh, best economic recovery in history, the highest growth rates, and the best bull market in history, highest return sets. So I wouldn't count this out. It, the, the question isn't whether infrastructure spending reduced regulation and tax policy will drive the economy to new higher growth rates. That I think has uh, been proven by Reaganomics. It is whether or not, Reaganomics took two and a half years to pass. He, to get the, the tax policy through took two and a half years. And Reagan had a very high approval rating at the time. We've got the opposite A scenario. really low, low, low approval rating low right basement, now. Yes. Basement. We've got yes. basement approval ratings for the president. And so I think that uh, getting his tax policy and infrastructure pa- uh, uh, spending and a budget passed, with Congress not passing a budget in the last eight years, will this year be the first year in nine that Congress actually does their job? I mean, we'll just have to see here. It's It's been... In terms of uh, gears clicking into place, I mean, the gears are not existing here. We haven't had any movement so far or very little movement. So in terms of corporate taxes, I I think, you know, is that something that could really, really uh, spur economic growth? Is that kind of like a wild card here that people aren't really paying attention to? Because everybody's paying attention to the individual you know, tax cuts and tax cuts for the wealthy or the bottom end or the middle or whatever. And everybody's got an opinion on that, but nobody's really talking about corporate tax cuts. So corporate tax cuts have a fairly bipartisan, both parties think it's a good idea to reduce corporate taxes. And will that, and lead, to, will that lead to huge growth in your estimation? So I think that leads to huge growth. I think that the personal tax uh, cuts that they're talking about and who gets them, this is meaningless in terms of spurring inconsequential. Growth, it's inconsequential in terms of giving us a huge growth push. If we do get corporate tax cuts, we are going to have the engine that drives growth higher, both at the large company and small company side. We get uh, freeing up of capital. Capital is the lifeblood of the U- U.S. economic system. We have a capitalistic economy capital-based economy so uh getting more money into action repatriating two to two and a half trillion dollars worth of almost capital three maybe right is going to be huge in terms of spurring additional economic growth which we sorely need and let's talk a little bit about economic growth for the second here hervey are uh Herve, harvey wow 
Wow, I just got hit by a hurricane. I can't talk. Harvey, Irma, Maria. I mean, some huge hurricanes really impacted, you know, the Gulf Coast, Florida, Puerto Rico, U.S. Virgin Islands. Let's talk about a mound of cash. I mean, there's there's going to have to be a massive amount of uh, money thrown at trying to rebuild infrastructure and all of the stuff that these people lost. Well, that I mean, the, last week, the news was that, uh, you know, jobs weren't good because of the hurricane. I mean, that, I, I think people are missing the point here. Isn't That's it? It's really temporary. You know, the uh, one of uh, uh, the, the Fed chair, Yellen, Fed chair, uh, current Fed chair, her favorite uh, uh, phrase has been transitory. Well, the I hate that word. The current, I, I, like the current when you're drop, talking to the American the, American public. There's a rule of thumb here. Let's not let's use you know third grade level words here. Transitory's got like a dictionary word. Man. So we had we're going to have a pause, obviously, in uh, the employment statistics because a lot of people weren't working because in in the lower part of the United States because of the uh, uh, so it was a temporary disruption. You know, Harvey Irma. Maria, Maria, Maria. I'm, I'm, I'm back. Him, him. So <laughs> at any rate, what we're going to have, though, is a temporary uh, hit, a hickey, if you will, on economic growth, unemployment statistics. That's not something to really worry about. And I think the market looks right through it. The market and the investors have been conditioned that the Fed has our backs and it's going to take something really dramatic to change that opinion or that outlook. We have an intensive, overly optimistic investing mindset. So let's uh, let's just delve one step deeper here. Puerto Rico, U.S. Virgin Islands, uh, they've all had budgetary debt troubles. Uh, is this going to be something that uh, the the federal government has to come in and give you know the U.S. Virgin Islands or Puerto Rico free money? Is there a path towards statehood? I mean, ninety seven percent of people in Puerto Rico think it would be favorable to become you know part of the United States. So, what do you think should be done here in terms of the debt troubles of Puerto Rico? Uh, obviously, a lot of the the spending and debt that they had was infrastructure related to begin with. Now they have to pretty much do a, a full rebuild. So, if you want to talk about it, uh, blowing a blowing a hole in the U.S. deficit. Just rebuilding Puerto Rico, which is going to take at least $100 billion in terms of infrastructure spending, probably over the next five to ten years, is a huge commitment. I think that um, unless the U.S. government has uh, some consensus on how they could possibly loan the money to Puerto Rico, that statehood is a great option for them. I think that the U.S. Uh, Virgin Islands are probably a little bit more sticky uh, in terms of statehood. But again, these are places that were completely devastated that need the U.S. government and the U.S., the people of the U.S., to step up and help. So, yes, we're going to blow a hole in the budget, but the good news is that they have to deal with this spending, and so it's likely we're going to get Congress to actually address a budget. They're going to actually have to come out with a budget, and and that should help overall. economic growth. It so would, right, and, so, and jobs, even if they're they're relatively short term for a few years, that that'll well, also gonna, help. It's so. going to take years to rebuild some of this. You know, in uh, Florida, 
you know, it'll take a while to rebuild it. We have to address the long-term nature of the risk of rising seas, putting more water, and build, surface water. And build and more, the stuff the right way. Build stuff the right way. You know, we need roads, bridges, tunnels, houses, everything adjusted for the new environment, which is more powerful storms than ever before because there's more surface water because of the polar ice caps melting. This is just where we're at. All right. So, you know, I want to get back to markets. And again, we have a special guest here. I want to wait till after the break to, to unveil our special guest. And no, it's it's not a superhero, but pretty close okay. in, in our, our, our opinion. I can't wait. Let's go. This is pretty cool. It's our first, you know, uh, live guest ever. So cool. we'll we'll get that after the break. We're going to talk about markets, liquidity, innovation in in products like ex- exchange traded funds and such. We'll be right back in just a moment. Are you worried about bonds? WBI has an active ETF focused on global fixed income and high yield dividend stocks that is designed to protect capital during market declines and participate in market advances. The WBI Tactical High Income ETF, WBIH, can be a great tool to pair with passive ETFs to help reduce down market correlation, volatility, and loss of capital. Learn more at WBIShares.com. An investment in the fund is subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Investments in fixed income involve risk and may be adversely impacted when interest rates fall because the fund may be exposed directly or indirectly to lower yielding bonds. Investors should consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses carefully before investing. For prospectus and summary prospectus, visit WBIShares.com or call 1-800-772-5810. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Foresight Fund Services Distributor. And we're back. Our special guest today is Doug Jonas, head of exchange traded product at the New York Stock Exchange. Doug, we're happy to have you here today. Thanks for coming. Well, Matt and Don, I'm glad to be here. I'm sorry I'm not Batman because I know you it's all right. It's all right, but you but, look like Batman. Yeah, thank you. But, but, you know. Yeah, <laughs> it, and it's almost Halloween anyway, so you know you can be anybody you want on Halloween, right? Yeah, but he actually looks like Batman. Um, he kind of does a little. It's Headphones that give me bigger ears. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, let's talk a little bit about the New York Stock Exchange. I don't know that most people know that it is an American institution and really how big a role you guys play, you know, on a day to day basis in, in making things happen. Yeah, I mean, uh, our history goes back literally 225 years this year. So it, it, uh, it all started out on the streets in Wall and Broad Street where the first bonds and the first stock of the United States started trading. And in 1792, 24 brokers came together and founded the New York Stock Exchange. And since then, our role is about, uh, you know, helping American capitalism, helping global capitalism, and really helping people who want to make the world a better place come raise money and invest towards the future. And and so, uh, as you can imagine, exchange-traded funds have become a, a big part of that future. It's one of our faster-growing parts of our business. and. On a daily basis today, about 30% of our dollar volume is now exchange-traded funds. Wow. So, you know, let's talk about the innovation. You have people standing in the street trading stock. And, uh, you know, people have seen the pictures of people trading on the floor. Is that still the case today, or is it all machines, or is it a, a blend of that? It's, it's still the case today. I mean, as you said, innovation, we, ha- we have to be there. We, we've innovated from the earliest days to where we are today. But you get this perfect combination at the New York Stock Exchange of 
uh, both man and machine. So you've got the technology there. We've got trades executing faster than ever. The messaging traffic is somewhere around 50 billion messages per day. But at the same time, you have a designated market maker on the floor of the exchange that has to be there all day, every day, committing capital, making sure they're buying and selling. And when we look across our markets, the same thing exists. We have lead market makers in the ETF world that are designated roles. And those firms have to be there all day, making sure that there's liquidity surrounding that ETF. So let's talk about liquidity for a second. Um, you know, uh, people have said that liquidity could lead to the next bear market. So in, in that sense, if you do have markets that are challenged, we see pricing, you know, uh, prices, you know, moving lower and such. What what happens uh, in that blend between man and machine that helps to keep markets orderly and, and not, you know, to, to lead towards panic? I think the key point you made is orderly, right? The, the the role of that lead market maker or designated market maker, it's not to keep a, a stock or an ETF from, from going down or, to, or from going up. It's to make sure it's being done in an orderly fashion. So over the years, particularly in the last few years, a lot of market structure changes to help slow down the market or to halt a single security so we can have single security halts and to drive auction volume back in so that if you do have a price dislocation, you have a, an opportunity for people to come in and add liquidity. So, Doug, you know, one of the reasons why WBI uh, chose the New York Stock Exchange as its listing partner is because of this blend of machine and man, because we think it's important. In 2008, we saw a liquidity crisis evolve across not only individual securities, but ETFs also as you know, the uh, buy side turned into a complete sell side route worldwide. So when there's too many sellers and not enough buyers, you get a cascading of prices lower. Why is the New York Stock Exchange the best place to uh, do business under those circumstances? If we get another big seller-driven marketplace, what, what does the New York Stock Exchange do that other exchanges don't? You know, I think of what it comes down to is in, when you're in the exchange business, what, what are we trying to do? We're trying to drive liquidity. We keep saying this word. Well, what does liquidity mean? It really doesn't matter if you're trying to sell artwork, right? If, if, we're, if we're trying to sell uh, something in, a, in a, your, your local craft or you're trying to buy and sell ETFs, the more people we can get to come to that location means that we're going to have the best possible price and the easiest transaction, whether we're trying to buy or sell that piece of artwork. So the role of the exchange has become such where we're trying to attract participants. We're trying to attract everything from, from you and I as a retail participant to the advisor and the advisory market and making sure it's a very smooth transaction to uh, large banks, large trading firms, people who are looking to you know, make that liquidity transaction the whole part of their business and just try and go round trip, buy, sell, buy, sell all day long. <clears throat> as the markets have transformed over the years, we want to bring as many people into that marketplace as possible so that in the event the markets are cascading downward or they're rising, that you know you can execute the transaction you want to execute, you can do it at a price that you can feel comfortable with, and the information you're seeing is real time, not as if you place a trade and then something different comes back. So um, in terms of uh, ETFs, there's been this huge push towards 
ETFs over the last few years and, and really towards passive ETFs. Can you talk to us a little bit about the liquidity of ETFs? I mean, you, you get to see volume, which is the most popular indication of liquidity on a day-to-day basis. But is that really what people should pay attention to? Is that the headline news or is there something more to it? So if an advisor goes and he looks on screen and he sees volume of 10,000 shares in an ETF, is that indicative of how much volume is available for uh, this ETF? And if you exceed that 10,000 shares, which is 250,000 or so in invest, invested capital at 25 bucks a share, is that going to be a problem? I'll start with no, and then let me get back into why. Uh, if, if somebody out there is thinking, oh, well, I'm going to exclude the choices of ETFs I might invest in purely on average daily volume, they're going to take 80 plus percent of the marketplace out, out of their available reach immediately, which makes no sense because it's really not the volume of that ETF itself. It's, it's the underlying holdings. You know, we, we get uh, mystified a little bit about ex- ETFs because we call them that, but if we break it down, it's exchange traded fund right? It is a fund. Most of these products are registered under 40 Act or 33 Act. And, you know, it's, it's a registered investment company. We've, we've got a fund uh, where the underlying holdings is what the liquidity is all about. And, and let me explain a little bit. It, yeah, the ETF may trade 10,000 shares on a daily basis, mm-hmm. but uh, you might be a very large buyer. You want to come in and, and you want to invest full creation unit sizes, which are typically in the millions of dollars. When, when you come into the market to do so, there's someone on the other side, such as a market maker or an authorized participant, and their role is to go out and create new shares of the ETF. It's an open-ended fund. How they do that is they buy up all the underlying securities in the fund, they deliver them to the fund, WBI. WBI can turn around and say, here's your shares of the ETF. So it's a very fluid process, and it's one that if you're the market maker, if you're the AP, what are you doing? You're not worried about whether it trades 10,000 shares a day at the ETF level. You're worried about what are the, the liquidity is of the underlying holdings. And when you break down the liquidity of the underlying holdings, it's, it's typically negligible, right, product by product. So it really comes down to just a smarter way of thinking or a different way of thinking. We can't use a single stock measure of average daily volume to compare an ETF because an ETF isn't a single stock. So you got this basket of stocks, right? And if we take a look at the underlying liquidity, and let's say the top five holdings are large cap companies like General Motors or Forders you know, um, Macy's, Apple, it doesn't really matter. There's massive liquidity in the underlying shares. So if you come to market uh, to buy the ETF and you've got a lot of capital, you're not going to really disturb the market, right? That's correct. I mean, the the key is is just allow that process to take place. So uh, what's really neat about ETFs in my mind is you've got that primary market, what we just talked about, the ability for somebody to create new shares. So they just go and they buy the, the GMs and the, and the Boeings and, the, and they buy those underlying securities, they deliver them in, and then there's your ET, ETF. But not only do you have that liquidity, you have a second piece of liquidity, which is the ETF itself. Remember, there's market makers out there that hold positions, you or I might hold a position. So a lot of times, in fact, most of the time when people come in to buy the ETF, what we find is it doesn't even usually turn into a creation or redemption. So that's a secondary market for that's, ETFs. That's right. So it's a secondary liquidity sleeve, which is at, which is actually adding liquidity back into the marketplace. So, let, so uh, you know, the way I see it, the individual stock-based uh, ETF, there's not really that big a liquidity concern, and you can easily identify what the underlying liquidity is 
uh, in those individual stocks that are being held, certainly in you know, the majority of the uh, capitalization weight of the ETF. So what about bonds, though? Bonds are an auction market. Um, you know, stocks are not. They, 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 they trade all day on the exchanges. Um, how does it work with a bond? Yeah, it, it's not only is it the same, Don, it's actually even better. And what I mean by that, like you said, bonds are difficult, right? It, there isn't a, a central marketplace. We're trying to create one, so we actually have a New York Stock Exchange bonds platform. But the reality is for most bond transactions, they're done in a dealer market. Somebody has to pick up the phone and call dealer to dealer. Do you have this bond? Oh, you do. What's the price of that bond? You know, almost like, uh, I guess, buying a, a used car, right? We're, we're calling dealer to dealer. Do you have what I'm looking for? And so it can be even more difficult in the fixed income world. Now, all of a sudden, you have this ETF. As an investor, you can go buy the ETF. Maybe the ETF just trades across market makers, and it never touches the underlying bond. Fine. As an investor, that's great for me. I don't have the transaction costs of picking up the phone, calling place to place, hoping I get a good price. Do I know if I get a good price? We know exactly where we are with the ETF. The underlying market itself, occasionally, for very large buys and sells of the ETF, yes, then the AP will go and source the bonds, but they're doing it at the institutional level. So what, what I always love to think about is it's like democratization of investing. As an individual advisor, my clients are actually getting the pricing power of a major institution, and yet they're they're buying fixed income increments that could be much smaller. So if, um, you know, I, I talk to advisors all over the country all the time, and uh, both institutional investors, uh, money managers like ourselves also, and there seems to be a perception that, you know, if we do actually get a crack in the bond market where interest rates are responding to Fed pressure, right, and we get uh, interest rates moving higher and bond prices collapsing because everybody decides to sell, do we have a underlying liquidity crisis, which I know the government's worried about, I know the exchanges are worried about, but we haven't seen that happen yet. We haven't seen that kind of significant price location where all of a sudden the ETFs are coming unglued, except for a couple of brief periods in 2010 and 2015 where we had you know massive selling at the open. And I wanna come back to the open because I wanna talk after you get done answering that question about when it's appropriate to sell shares. Yep, absolutely. So let's start with the, the ETF itself and how um, you can get liquidity in an ETF when you might not be able to get liquidity elsewhere. And I, I think back in my mind, we're all old enough to remember 2008 and 2009 very well. And we can remember, remember late 2008, uh, if you wanted to, to actually sell a corporate bond, you, you, could, you would actually pick up the phone and say, I want to sell this bond, and it was, there's no bid. Right? It, it, you knew it had value. No buyers. No buyers. We, we knew it had value. Right? It was a good, stable company. Right? Uh, but we just could the, the bond market, for the most part, over a series of days, was completely locked up. So zero bid on, a, on your underlying bond, but your ETF was still trading. Now, we might not like the price of that ETF because it looks like it's trading as a discount and where's NAV and we have to make a call. But the reality is the ETF gave you a way to get out if you wanted out or if you wanted to buy, it gave you a way to, to, to buy it as, as what looked like a significant discount and then you can make the call to, to trade or not to trade. But I think that's the key difference is it's a liquidity sleeve that exists no matter what. And even in cases of, as you said, an extreme situation where the underlying market just, just isn't trading. Same thing uh, in the equity markets. You know, I think about uh, the Egyptian crisis where the Egyptian 
uh, markets were completely closed, Greek, right, crisis, Greek market completely closed, yet the Greek ETF still trading, ETFs that are holding the, the Egyptian equity market still trading. So there's this great fair value process that can go on where we as an investor don't have to worry about being stuck and we can actually buy or sell regardless of what's happening in, in the overall marketplace. Right, that's a decision you have to make. So um, we see uh, advisors um, make decisions about gaining liquidity or investors making decisions about gaining liquidity in ETFs, um, we think at the wrong time. Tell us when is the appropriate time? What is, when's the most dangerous time to, to seek liquidity, uh, especially for larger block trades? And um, uh, give us, you know, essentially uh, give us a handicap on the day trading. You're, you guys uh, see more of this we, than we anybody see a lot of people with their finger on the trigger, you know, like nine twenty nine. Got to got to make sure I press it right at nine. I want to get out now. I got to get out. Got to get out. I got to get my trade in. I, I um, if if nothing else, I talk about this morning. It was important. This is the most important part. Uh, so, you know, if if I could offer everyone a piece of advice, think about what it, what is an ETF. It's holding all these different bonds or all these different stocks underneath of it. It has a derived value, right? We know real time, if we add up all those different holdings and we, we aggregate them into a single share, we know exactly what it's worth. And then we can go and buy and sell around that intelligently. And, and when I say intelligently, right, use a limit order, be smart about the way you trade. At 929.59, and then nowadays we're into you know fractions of a second. So pick your microsecond level the overall market hasn't opened yet. So if I'm the other side of that trade, if I'm a market maker and you're coming to me and saying, okay, I want to buy or I want to sell, my computer hasn't picked up all the underlying prices yet. So I have to guess at nine at nine three zero 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 zero, I'm making the best call I can because the market hasn't really opened. So if, if you're gonna buy and sell at that time of day, then protect yourself. Make sure you're very confident about the price you want and put a limit order on it or something that, that helps to protect that confidence. If you can wait one minute, two minute, let the markets open, let them settle. Now the market makers, they know exactly what the price of the underlying security is worth. That means they know exactly what the ETF is worth. Now there's gonna be way more liquidity and way more comfort in that price, much easier to access that liquidity. And so, you, I'm sorry, good time. No, no, so what we've seen is that at first 15 minutes of trading, you can get scalped. You know, the market maker's making their best call, but because they've got risk and they can't identify how much risk they're taking, they're going to protect themselves. And you're going to get a lot, um, you can get uh, pricing that doesn't reflect the day that obviously is one side or the other. Usually, because they're protecting themselves, you're going you're gonna to get a poorer execution in that first 15 minutes. So, you know, while there's a lot of liquidity in that first 15 minutes of trading, uh, wouldn't you think it's uh, probably uh, good to, you know, hold yourself back and be careful, you know, right there? Yeah, I think that's the key, right, is, is being careful. You, you can get liquidity, but are you, you know, the question I always say to ask yourself, are you willing to access that liquidity at any price? Mm -hmm. And usually our answer is, well, well, no, I'd like to buy or I'd like to sell, but I'd actually prefer to know I'm getting NAV or something very, very close to NAV. So, so you're exactly right. If I can wait a minute... Let the markets open, let them settle in, you know, and, and same thing, think about the European equity markets for East Coast time, right? They tend to close around 1 p.m. East Coast. So again, after 1 p.m., the market maker's doing their best guess at what the value of that, of that market's worth. So if you're gonna trade European equity, you'd probably trade earlier in the day, right, East Coast time. Let the markets know what they're worth. 
Otherwise, yes, you can absolutely get liquidity, but I always say, are you willing to access that liquidity at any price? What about the market close? What about the end of day? End of day is, is typically a, a great time to access liquidity because you've got this auction event, right? All, all, all the exchange volumes across, you know, when we think about we've got roughly 13 equity markets today uh, at the exchange level, there's probably another 40 plus dark pools and ECNs and ATSs, use whatever phrase you want. Uh, but the reality is there's a lot of liquidity that exists off exchange today. At the, at the end of the day, that liquidity comes back to the auction and we have this singular event. You can typically tap into great auction, uh, you know, a great amount of liquidity at, at, at that time. But again, if you don't want that liquidity at any price, then, then throw that limit order in there, even if it's a protective limit order, you know, up a little bit or down a little bit. That way you, you don't have an event where you say, oh, geez, I didn't, I didn't think I'd get that price. So tell me a little bit about what's changed since August 24th, 2015. Market opens down 10% in the first half hour of trading. There was significant price dislocation going on. That was a lot driven by ETFs. And uh, from my understanding, you know, uh, the, the, the exchanges have made some changes to help that you know, first half hour of trading to be a much more orderly process. The exchanges have, uh, you know, I think uh, the culmination across the industry for change has been great. But I think the key in the, is, let's start out at what I said earlier, an, an ETF is worth what the underlying holdings are worth. And on August 24th, the, the markets were opening pretty slowly, quite sporadically, and a lot of individual stocks were halted themselves. So this goes back to that whole 929, 930 time. If an underlying stock is halted, like it was August 24th, then as a market maker, I have to guess what I think that stock is worth. So they looked at the S&P futures. Well, those are down. In fact, they were halted all the way down as far as they could go. So there was a lot of fear about mispricing and mis a lot of uncertainty. So market makers chose to price much lower to try and protect themselves. Same thing. Uh, and then what, by the time the markets did open, which took you know, 15, 20, 20 minutes in some cases, things stabilized and then we saw a lot of a lot of snapping back to, to what we would say fair value. And so since that point, the exchanges have come together and then individual exchanges have made a lot of changes. So uh, now there's pricing bands that are in effect in effect that weren't there before. Those pricing bands are a lot more uh, you know what what I'll say is dynamic. They can actually move a little bit with the market. There's been uh, a lot of information, I think, is what, it, right, information's always key. The exchanges, particularly New York Stock Exchange, we now publish what we call as a pricing feed. It's, it'll show you imbalance data all the way until a stock opens. That wasn't the case on August 24th. So a lot of individual uh, occurrences of uh, really, really impactful market structure changes that I'm probably geeking out a little bit mm -hmm. past where people are, are thinking, but the point is, uh, you know, look, we take this very seriously, and there's been a, a lot of really neat changes that have occurred for the, for those of us market structure so, nerds. We love it. So, what uh, other innovation do you see at the product level, at, at, at the exchange traded product level? What's what's new and what's happening? Yeah, I think it's interesting. You know, you'd mentioned active ETFs. And, and we don't typically think about the ETF industry as being active, but there is a growing proportion of active ETFs. We're seeing this, this we may love it or hate it, the phrase smart beta, uh, but alternatively weighted type uh, versus market cap of products have been growing faster than market cap. So there, there's a lot of changes and there's also a lot of access products coming to market. So 
new ways to access commodities, new ways to access professional managers. I think when we think about WBI, right, you know, you guys are doing just that, right? Giving professional man money management to not just advisors, but even me as an individual, as a retail investor, I now have access to your portfolio management as a tool. That's democratization. That's what ETFs are offering, which is the ability for, for those of us who are thinking about investing for the future to be able to invest right alongside professional money managers, which, you know, historically was unheard of. And, and that, you know, we always say, oh, ETFs are the darling of the investment management world. That, that's why, right, is as investors, as people who are in, a, in the money management industry, our role is to try and help people really succeed, right? Uh, whether it be their future retirement fund, whether it be for their, their kids' education, they're thinking about college, all the reasons that all of us have to invest, ETFs have now allowed those investors and those advisors access to professional money managers such as yourselves. Uh, it's pretty amazing to to watch the that transformation as an industry. Yeah, we think that uh, you know the ETFs that were uh, out earlier were just passive, all passive index based, and um, we don't think today because of the uh, focus that media has put on both passive indexing and low cost that investors are aware of the potential uh, risks that they're taking because we haven't had a bear market in going on nine years yeah. and they've really forgotten about the 2008-2009 crisis in terms of how much money they lost and passive indexing provides a symmetrical return profile on the way up which they've loved people have made a lot of money but on the way down you're going to get the same thing and the average decline about every six years which we haven't had we think the market tried in 2015 and the fed stepped in uh, in 2016, the markets opened with their worst start to a year ever, again, trying for the typical six-year bear market cycle out of 2008. Um, but we think that the active ETFs are a revolutionary change. We probably have the most active ETFs in the marketplace. And the reason why we're active is to uh, provide risk management as a key component of our offering. Not return chasing, but risk management and secondarily get good market participation when uh, the opportunity for return is positive. We think that's unbelievable. And if I'm not mistaken, the uh, active side is growing faster. Active ETFs are now growing faster than the rest of the market segment. Yes, yeah, you're, you're absolutely correct. If we look at, you know, if we sort of break it down into index-based, active, uh, you know, alternative beta, the active segment is actually the fastest growing part of the ETF marketplace. So um, that's been a combination of, I guess, investors starting to, to adopt and adapt. We also have, as you know, there are you know gatekeepers at various uh, firms, and they love seeing a three-year or a five-year track record. And so a lot of funds are now starting to finally hit that in the ETF space, so they're gaining adoption quickly to those platforms. And it's ETFs are really about access, right? As, a, as an advisor, and you're putting a portfolio together, the question is, do you have access to all the different products out there? So what's cool that the uh, New York Stock Exchange is uh, coming up with next that we're not quite aware of? Well, I think... Uh, well, he may not be able to talk about that. Yeah, I don't know. know. It's Batman bad. has a lot of secrets in his <laughs> lair. <laughs> um, I think one of the most exciting things we're working on today, I'm actually going to talk about two. One is we're always trying to adapt and adopt to liquidity challenges. So one of the things we found is there's a lot of firms, you know, as banks have really moved away from, from having the capital to be able to trade like they used to, 
it's newer firms, up and coming uh, firms that are really trading ETFs. So we look for new programs. We've we've launched a series of those to uh, to bring them to the market, so that as an advisor, when you come in to trade the ETF, you get better liquidity, better pricing. So I think that's one. And then, uh, t- you know, to be determined. But there's constant talk and constant work on non-transparent active ETF solutions. None exist today. Uh, but the work we're doing at the exchange, we hope that th- that that changes over the next year or so. Great. Well, great. Well, th- thanks for for joining us, Doug. And uh, you heard it here from Batman, <laughs> <laughs> New York Stock Exchange. Yeah, absolutely. So, so thank you for joining us. Uh, you you can follow the New York Stock Exchange uh, on Twitter at at NYSE, and uh, you can follow us. Uh, you know. Uh, at uh, WBI CEO and at WBI president. And that's all we have time for today on Bull Bear Radio. So thanks. Thanks for joining us. This is Bull Bear Radio, where each week you can count on our real market news and advice. Catch all of our podcast episodes at WBIinvestments.com. Past performance does not guarantee future results. The views presented are those of the podcast participants and should not be construed as investment advice. Podcast participants or clients of WBI may own stock discussed in this recording. All economic and performance information is historical and not indicative of future results. This is not an offer to buy or sell any security. No security or strategy, including those referred to directly or indirectly in this podcast, is suitable for all accounts or profitable all of the time and there's always a possibility of loss. Moreover, you should not assume that any discussion or information provided here serves as a receipt of or as a substitute for personalized investment advice from WBI or from any other investment professional. To the extent that you have any questions regarding the applicability of any specific issue discussed to your individual situation, please consult with WBI or the professional advisor of your choosing. This information is compiled from sources believed to be reliable. Accuracy cannot be guaranteed. Information pertaining to WBI's advisory operations services and fees is set forth in WBI's disclosure statement in Part 2A of Form ADV, a copy of which is available upon request. <laughs>